Scripture this morning will come from Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Again, that's Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. They are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Aeropolis. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas also send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, See to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Good morning. Glad you're with us today. I'm, my heart's full. It's full of gratitude. I was just reflecting on the week and all the good things that have been going on. Um, I think about Wednesday night with the block party where we had a time to open our doors and our hearts to our neighbors. Um, thank you for all who served, those who brought food, those who helped, uh, a great success. And we just pray that doors were open, uh, relationships were started. I, I came away knowing at least I felt like I had three new friends that I sat and had dinner with that I didn't know before I walked into the room. So thank you for that. And then Saturday, yesterday, uh, we had our back-to-school giveaway, and so many of you donated money to help with that. In fact, we as a church... Uh, gave $4,500 to help with that effort, uh, and that's phenomenal. We were able to give, and I say we, uh, and that's another sweetness of this uh, uh, giveaway that uh, so many churches work together uh, to do this, and that's a, another neat part of it. Some volunteered to help, uh, others donated socks, but we were able to give 2,500 backpacks away. And that helps a lot of families in Murray County, and it's such a, a beautiful thing. This summer, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Colossians, and appreciate Wyatt reading this last section. He had the one with all the names, uh, and he did a, a great job with that. What we see in the book of Colossians is some overriding themes. The first half is that Jesus is Lord over all. And then the second part of the letter is Jesus is Lord over me. A lot of personal application there. Well, today we come to the last section where Paul wraps up the letter, and it's very personal. As you're reading through that with Wyatt, you notice that he mentions 10 people by name. And that's going to be our text today. And you may be thinking, how are you going to preach about all these names? I mean, what, what does that matter? I mean, let's be real about this. Often when we get to this part of one of Paul's letters, we just kind of quickly read over the names. For when we don't know how to pronounce them, we don't know a lot about them, doesn't seem to apply to us, and so we just treat it that way. However, I truly believe that God has a purpose for everything that he records in his word. And I think there's something that we can learn from this as well. This is more than a list of ten names. 
I think in this brief section, we get some insight into what the church was like. Some of the individuals in this first century church. And we understand the importance of each member and how they can bring unity and fellowship and love and togetherness for others. You know, memorials serve a good purpose, and we often talk about that because our communion is a type of memorial. But if you've ever been to a small town, in fact, almost, I wouldn't say all, but a lot of small towns will have a memorial for the fallen soldiers from that city or from that county. And it's kind of a nice way for them to pay tribute. But what I've noticed is usually it's a generic. It's like for those who were from this area, this county, this city. But there is one memorial in D.C., and you're very familiar with it, the Veterans uh, Memorial for uh, Vietnam War, where it's all about names. 58,318 U.S. soldiers who died in the war. And often when you're there to see that memorial or even see a picture of that memorial, what you see is somebody there with a piece of paper and a paper, a pen, and they're scratching over that name. Because it's more than just a list of names. It's people. It's their loved one. At first glance, when you look at this section, you and I might look at this and go, I don't know these people. That's just a list of names. But when we look a little closer, what we see is this is like a front row seat to the church. Aristarchus was a fellow prisoner right there alongside Paul. Mark had been on a missionary trip with Paul. Justice is one of the three Jewish believers who spent time with Paul, no matter what others thought about that. Luke, we know Luke, wrote more New Testament verses even than the Apostle Paul. Nympha had a house church that met in her place, so obviously she had the gift of hospitality. These are real people, faithful, dedicated, committed Christians. They were the church. So let's not just think of this as a list of names. There's a reason they're here, and a lot we can learn from that. Now, I want to kind of go through all ten of them because we don't know a lot about some of them, but some we do know more about and I want to look at four of these names and with these four see three principles that help unify the church so if you fill in the blank the first point I want us to see is this unity comes through encouragement and you see a block there on your outline and you can write in the word Tychicus now I don't know if that's how to say his name Wyatt did a great job pronouncing his name you can say it another name I'm going to call it Tychicus because that's what's in my brain but look what verse 7 says. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Look for a moment more closely at how Paul describes this man. Not just a brother. He's a dear brother. Not just another minister. He's a faithful one. Not just somebody who serves, he's a fellow servant. He's someone down in the trenches with Paul. So everything that, that Paul writes about Tychicus helps us to see that he was the type of person that you could really count on. And then in verse 8 he says, I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. See, evidently, Paul chose Tychicus because he knew that he could provide to the church something they desperately needed. 
encouragement. You know, sometimes people need teaching. Sometimes people need correcting. But is there ever a time where people do not need encouragement? And that's why he was sending Tychicus there. Because encouragement is always in season. You can write an encouraging note. You can encourage with an act of kindness or a good deed. But isn't it just on the top of our list when someone says something encouraging to us? They just express those encouraging words. But our words can also discourage. Comments can tear the body down. Comments that are laced with sarcasm or a critical spirit. Words that convey not a heart of love, but more of bitterness and pain or maybe a selfish agenda. Maybe our words reveal our own self-interest or self-righteousness. Look in Ephesians 4.3. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What does that mean? I like the way the, the message paraphrases that. It simply says, stay together. Stay together. Charles Darwin, you ever heard of him? Probably. Did you know he was a master complainer? I did not know this until I read this story. He could find anything wrong with everything. You know anybody like that? Don't point. <clears throat> you can elbow them, but don't point. One time, he was at a restaurant with his wife. First, he complained about where they were seated. Then he complained about a draft that was blowing on them. Then he complained that the soup was too cold. Then the steak was overcooked. In spite of all the best efforts of everyone who was trying to take care of them, nothing seemed to go well. The owner of the restaurant went over to Mrs. Darwin and said, I'm so sorry that things didn't go well tonight, did they? And she goes, oh, no, he had a marvelous time. He got to complain about everything. And there are some people who seem to be able to do just that. Look at Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that may benefit those who listen. Paul sent Tychicus to the church at Colossae to deliver this letter and to encourage their hearts. Think about that. That was his mission, to encourage their hearts. And when a fellowship, a church, is fueled by that kind of encouragement, you see them coming together. You see them helping each other. You see them serving one another. You see their faith in Jesus making them one. And they're better off because of it. And that's true of any organization. One commentary I was reading said, I'll take unity over talent any day. There is power when people come together. If you grew up attending church, you no doubt have heard the verse Hebrews 10.25 quoted. You know what that says? Probably know it by heart. All about not forsaking the assembly, right? But look at the verse just before that. Verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It may be that in our brains we have Hebrews 10.25 pegged as a verse that it tells us, encourages us, commands us to come to worship on Sundays. Yes! But look, before and after that, 
We come to worship God, yes. But a very close second is you come to encourage others. Think about that. As you're getting ready to come to worship on Sunday, what if a part of your preparing, whatever that is, getting dressed, eating your breakfast, getting the family together, you could think about, pray about, whom could I encourage today? God, give me eyes to see. Give me an attentive ear to hear. Let me be, be the one to greet. I want to be there not just for me and not think about the songs or the sermon or, or what I need, but whom could I encourage? Paul sent Tychicus with the express purpose of encouraging the church. What was so compelling and beautiful about Jesus and his message and his kingdom that is so different from so many other world uh, religions and other kinds of, of beliefs and faith systems is that Jesus came with an overwhelming sense of inclusiveness. For God so loved the world that whoever believes, whoever doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter. It's for everyone. But that also means that while people came from all kinds of backgrounds and had this common Savior in Jesus Christ, that meant they were otherwise very different. They didn't grow up thinking the same way. They didn't grow up worshiping the same way. They didn't come to their, their faith in Jesus in the same way. And so in some ways, you think that unity had to be that much more difficult, that much more challenging. Yet in Christ, they were one. They were united until they weren't. And that brings us to the other list of names, another name. So here's the second point. Unity comes through reconciliation. Two names to think about here that model this for us. The first, Colossians 4, 9, he, talking about Tychicus, is coming with Onesimus. You've heard of him before. Our faithful and dear brother who is one of you, they will tell you everything that is happening here. Now, we talked about Onesimus a couple of weeks ago as his, uh, as his name came up. We were talking about this. He was a slave in Colossae by a gentleman named Philemon. But he ran away to Rome. The apostle Paul met him there, led him to faith in Christ. So Paul told him to do the right thing, to go back home and make things right. Onesimus was a different person now. He's a follower of Jesus. What I think is interesting to note that nowhere in the book of Philemon that deals with this uh, detail ex explicitly, or even here in the book of Colossians, do you read about Paul bringing up all the things that Onesimus did wrong? You don't read that at all. You don't read about how he blew it. Paul doesn't do that. Paul knows. Onesimus is a follower of Jesus now. Onesimus is a different person now. The old is gone. The new has come. He's been transformed. Why bring up his past? And who knows more about a transformed life than the former murderer, Paul? He wouldn't want anybody to bring up his past. He was eager to believe in that new creation. 
And he did the same thing with Onesimus here. See, the same God who can use people with a messy, messy life before they come to faith in Jesus is the same God who can use people who mess up after they come to Jesus. In fact, God uses sinners and failures. If you think about it, that's all he's got to choose from. That's who we are. We are forgiven sinners, but God will use that to his glory. And I love this heartwarming phrase that's kind of neatly tucked into the sentence. Don't miss this. Paul describes Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. He is one of you. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So he goes on and mentions another example of how this unity comes through reconciliation. Look in verse 10. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. You remember Mark? Put his name in that second block on your outline. Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey was a tremendous success. And so after spending some time in Antioch telling the church about all the things that they did, Paul suggested to Barnabas that now that some time has passed, let's go back and visit all those places and check on all those new Christians and see how they were doing. Barnabas loved the idea and suggested they take Mark with them. Paul didn't want to take Mark. Paul reminded Barnabas that Mark is the one that he was with them on the first journey, but somewhere along the way, Mark deserted them. He left. He went back. We don't know a lot of the details there, but in Acts chapter 15, Luke describes this interchange between them, and he uses the phrase, a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. A sharp disagreement. You ever seen one of those? You ever been in one of those? We read that phrase, we know exactly what he's talking about. So intense, they separated company. They could not come together on that. They were so divided on that. So Paul, you remember, chose Silas. Barnabas chose Mark. So now we had two teams. You might think, well, now we've got two. That's better. But it's always hard for me to feel good about that. Because it started with a point of contention, with this sharp disagreement. But we need to see this. That even in these godly men who are trying to do what's right, these men in a leadership position, even among the spiritually strong, you might say, they're not perfect. And sometimes they blow it. I love how God reveals those moments to us in Scripture. Now, we don't hear a lot more about this, but we do see now that they've reconciled. The friendship has been restored. Reconciliation has taken place. Look what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Kind of toward the end of his life. You might remember this. Only Luke is with me, Paul writes. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. Isn't that great? So some time has passed, but obviously the Apostle Paul has practiced reconciliation with Mark. This young man blew it. He made a mistake. Paul was not impressed. He didn't want to count on him again because he had counted on him, and Mark failed him. He left him. But now we see they've reconciled, and Paul and Mark are on the best terms again. And he, Paul publicly makes that known. Get Mark. He's useful for me. So again, we don't know all that happened, 
But I think it's safe to say pride was put away. Apologies were made. Grudges were buried. Offenses forgiven. What a picture of reconciliation. At first, a sharp disagreement. But they kept doing the work of the Lord. But they didn't just leave it there. They were finally reconciled. What a picture of unity for the body of Christ. I thought about that, and I was doing some, some research just very quickly online. You know, based on studies of those who avoid Christian churches, one of the driving forces why people give up on attending any kind of church was some type of painful experience at church. That doesn't surprise you. Maybe you've been there, or maybe you know someone who's in that very situation. In fact, one Barna study among unchurched adults shows that four out of ten, almost four out of ten, 37% of, of uh, Americans say they avoid churches because of a negative past experience in churches or with church people. Four out of ten. Do you remember what Paul wrote just one chapter earlier? Colossians three thirteen. Look at the screen or in your Bibles. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now that's not our nature, is it? I'm right. Mark is wrong. Paul could easily have thought that way. I think for a while he did. We tend to do just the opposite of what Paul wrote here. In the summer of 1986, there were two ships that collided in the Black Sea just off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of people died as they were hurled into the icy waters. But the news of the disaster, as devastating as that was, became even more troublesome when they tried to understand what caused the collision. It was not a malfunction of the radar or any equipment. It was not thick fog or other kind of weather-related issue. It wasn't even caused by human error, like a miscalculation. It was caused by human stubbornness. Each captain was fully aware of the presence of the other vessel for 45 minutes. They knew they were headed for a crash. They easily could have steered clear of each other. But according to the news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. And then when at the last moment they saw they were about to truly crash, they turned, but it was too late. 297 innocent people died because of the stubbornness of two. Disagreements, unmet expectations, pain, it's inevitable when you're talking about humans, even within the church, it happens. But the question is the manner of which you choose to handle those times. Do you give up on the church? Do you quit altogether? But who does that help, really, if you think about it? Does your response honor Jesus? Are you acting like the world, or are you responding like Jesus would? Does your heart, does your reaction... Do you seek retribution? Do you seek restoration? How do you respond in those times? See, reconciliation unifies the church because it allows individuals to swallow their pride and to admit their shortcomings. 
Look on the screen at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. This may be one of those passages that if you don't have this in your mind as just a, a go-to verse, then I encourage you just to write Philippians 2 in the back of your Bibles or maybe put it on a post-it note on your mirror or, or put it as a screensaver, whatever you need to do. But this is a, a verse that all of us need to come back to again and again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you wrong someone, especially in this church, but anyone, you go to them and you seek forgiveness, reconciliation. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That's the picture that God wants his people to model and that for the world to learn from how beautiful reconciliation is. One more way we can show unity. Another blank to fill in, and that is through prayer. Just very quickly, Epaphras was with Paul in prison. He had left Colossae and, and hadn't come back with Tychicus and Onesimus. So maybe the church is thinking, well, well, what happened to him? Why didn't he come back with them? Does he still believe? Is there a problem? Does he care about us anymore? But I want you to see that he is doing, and Paul points this out, the greatest work that anyone can do for the church. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, there's that phrase again, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So he's praying for you, for your church, night and day. Paul says, I want you to appreciate this tremendous ministry, this thing, this effort, this faith-filled prayer time that he's praying for you. And that word wrestling, if you trace back the original word, we get our word agonize from the same word. So this is not just a, a pious, repetitious phrase that all of us can say when we're praying to God. These were heartfelt. This was intense. He's wrestling in prayer. And it's about his church family that they will be fully trusting in God Standing firm in his will. One author observed, Epaphras is the only person in the Bible that the Apostle Paul specifically commends for his prayer ministry. Tonight we've got our Sunday night connect and our focus will be prayer. May I encourage you just to carve out an hour and come and pray with and for your church family. You know, every time we gather to worship, there are people who pray for you and for me that everything that we do are in glory and honor to God, that the Holy Spirit will speak through me the truths that you need to hear. We're praying for those who are listening online, for the truth to be taught. I'm certain that many of you know well what it means to wrestle in prayer. 
Well, let's talk about this a moment. We also, if we're not careful, can relegate prayer, I don't know how to say this, sort of as a, a, a first step or a less than. Because when something is needed, there's a, there's a human part of us that we want to jump in and help. If somebody's in a ditch, I'm going to get down there with them and pull them up. If somebody's hurting, I'm going to go there and help them. If they need money, I'm going to be the first to, to write the check. We want to do something. And there's something about prayer where it seems like we're not doing something. And so it becomes second or third on our responses. Can we change our thinking there and just realize when we go to God in prayer, we're going to the God of the universe, the most important, the most powerful, who can do anything much better than we could even think to do. We need to agonize or wrestle in prayer. And the problem, though, is we underestimate prayer. We underestimate people. Reader's Digest told a story about a university professor. He wrote into telling himself. In the story he talked about he taught classes all day, did his lectures. He did research at night but at 9 o'clock every night he would take a break and get online. This was when Warcraft was just becoming popular. So if you're not familiar with the game you, you, you get online and you get a partner that you don't know um, you partner up, and then you as a twosome, you'll battle other twosomes in several games. Well, that night, his partner, he'd never played with him before, master strategist, unbelievable, undefeatable. He was so glad to have him on his team. They won six straight games. It was a fantastic night, going so well. I mean, the time went so fast until his partner typed in, well, I've got to go now. My mom says I've got to go to bed. So the, the professor just typed in, how old are you? He typed back, I'm 12, how old are you? The professor turned really red and typed in, I'm eight. <laughs> how often do we make the mistake of underestimating others? They're too young, they don't know can't count on them. They're too old. I don't know them. Maybe they're new to the company. Maybe they're new to the church. Maybe they're different from you. Aren't we grateful that God doesn't do that? God knows those who are praying for his people. Those who are wrestling in prayer. And God never overlooks the ordinary people. In fact, God works through them all the time. If you have not noticed that as you read your Bibles, just keep reading. That's why I think the Spirit mentions so many times their names in the Bible. Paul did not consider his letter finished as good as this whole letter has been until he mentions some names, some people who are a part of this church. We can be united as a church, if there's encouragement, reconciliation, and prayer, amazing things can happen. Okay, I want to close. I want to make some personal application from this list of names. Most of these names we know very little about. 
All of them know little, some we know nothing about, but they're included by name as Paul mentions the letter. If you are a part of this church at West 7th, what would other people say about you? If you're a part of this church at West 7th, what would others here say about you? Sometimes when we mention a name, we'll identify someone, get this, I do it, you do it too, by where they sit. You ever done that? Oh, you know them, they sit near the front. Or you know them, they sit in the balcony. Or, or they sit, we do that, don't we? And then we try to, in our mind, try to peg that person by where they sit. Please, please, please be made known. Be known by more than where you sit. When I die, I don't want my children to gather around and go, you know, I remember dad because he would sit in the recliner in the corner. It's got to be more than that. Paul doesn't do that here either. You know Tychicus, he sits toward the back by John Mark's family. He doesn't do that at all. Instead, what if when we say about someone, one another here, or she's the one who's great at teaching the little ones. The kids just love her. Or he's the one who's, who's first to serve when needed. He's the one who, who gets here early, or, or he's the one who stays late. She has the best smile, makes everyone in the room feel so important. You know her, or he knows the word. You ever been in a Bible class with him? He's fantastic. Or she has the gift of hospitality, a small home, but she makes everybody feel like they're the most important. If you are a member of this church, may your actions, your involvement, your life, make it where others know your name. Now, some of you are not members of this congregation. Maybe you just recently started visiting. May I encourage you, just publicly keep visiting with us, asking questions, come for worship, stay for Bible class. Got a question, let us help you know more about you. But I want to challenge those who've been regularly attending this church for quite a while, months and months, for some even more than a year's. Isn't it time for you to decide to make this your church home? What's keeping you from doing that? To become more than a spectator, someone who could be known, not just where you sit, but what you do, how you serve? There's a little box on the registration form. You can say, I'd like this to be my church family. Or talk to an elder or a minister. Onesimus was described by Paul, Epaphras too, as one of you. He's one of you. Now, how did they do that? We don't know. But in some way, they were able to say, this is my church home. He's one of you. We want you to be one of us. That's what we're saying here. Now, very quickly, our process is simple. Usually, if you let us know, hey, I, I want to know more. I'd like to do this. Two elders will contact you and set up a time. Often, it's during Bible class on Sunday morning. It's really helpful. If you've got little kids. They can be in class while, while you talk. They'll let you share your faith journey, tell you where you've been, what you believe. They'll tell you a little bit about the church here. As your shepherds, they want to know who you are and how they can help you to grow and mature in the Lord. They can help you to know what you ask about the church here. And if needed, they'll follow up with a Bible study or other questions, maybe other meetings about how to get involved, how to serve. 
So today, we invite you to be one of us. Or today could be your day to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you're ready to be baptized so that you can be one with him. You know that song that we sang about he's our righteousness? That's what he wants to give you. So that God can look on Jesus and see us as clean and washed. If you need to respond in any way, would you come as we stand and sing this song to encourage? Oh, oh.